Well, here in Isaiah 16, we've got this prophecy about Moab, and it's really an incredible last-minute appeal for Moab to repent. And I don't think there's any other one nation that God talks so much about in terms of his anger with them, apart from Moab. Um, consistently, right the way through Israel's history, God is so against Moab, especially because of their pride. And we know that pride is the most abundant thing to God, and Moab were, pride, were proud, and therefore they were going to have the, the biggest destruction and, and judgment. So it's absolutely amazing that here, God in wrath remembers mercy, he really does, and this is an appeal for their repentance. Now, unfortunately, the, the, the translation is not at all clear, and that's why the, the chapter is, I suppose, read by many of us, and then we kind of shrug and think, just take one or two things out of it, and, and that's it. Because the translation is so confusing, especially that first verse, Send the lambs for the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Well, <clears throat> let's get the first bit. Uh, the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Well, that, throughout Isaiah, refers to the Temple Mount. And I would say that this is an appeal for the whole of Moab, from the ruler of the land, right across the territory of Moab, from Selah, uh, right across to their wilderness border, to send lambs to Mount Zion, in order to avert the judgment that was going to come. Because, verse 2, for it will be that Moab is going to be scattered, etc. And straight away you see there that God has said one thing, plan A, that Moab is going to be scattered, and the daughters of Moab are going to be like that at the fords of the Arnon, etc. And yet, that didn't have to happen. And this is really typical of how God operates. He states his purpose, and then he says, but there is a gap between my statement of this and my fulfilling of it, and you can change it by repentance. And that is true, in a sense, for all of us. So, <clears throat> Moab were living in the land that was promised to Abraham. And they were to accept that they were, as it were, in God's kingdom by grace. They weren't supposed to be there. And that's what it starts to, the whole history here starts to talk to us. Now, at the time of David, they had paid tribute. Moab paid tribute to David. And the reference is 2 Samuel 8, verse 2. And what do you think the tribute was? Well, later on in the history of Israel, they also paid tribute at some, some stage. And they paid tribute in lambs. That's 2 Kings 3, verse 4. So I think we can assume they sent their tribute to David in the form of lambs. So I think they're being asked to accept that there is a Davidic king that's ruling in, in Jerusalem. And you've got that in verse 5, that a throne is to be established in grace and one will sit on it in truth in the tent of David. This is the re-establishment of the Davidic kingdom. And they're to accept that and to do as they used to do in the time of David and send the tribute of lambs from their entire territory to, to the Temple Mount. So they're really being asked to participate in, uh, in temple sacrifices. They're being actually invited to become proselytes. And the whole of Moab is asked to do this, to recognize that Israel's God is in fact the ruler of the whole earth, or the land promised to Abraham. And then we come to some difficult word, words, difficult in terms of uh, translation in verse 3. 
I'll read from the NEV here. Give counsel, execute justice, make your shade like the night in the midst of the noonday. That is, really provide a great shade. Hide the outcasts, don't betray the fugitive. Let my outcasts dwell with you. As for Moab, be a hiding place for him from the face of the destroyer. Now, I realize that different translations are different uh, here, and the AV has set the, the pace for a lot of thinking on this in verse 4 by saying, Let my outcasts dwell with you, Moab. But as uh, you can see, that that's not the only translation there is. If that is the case, and a lot has been made of that by the John Thomas School of uh, Prophetic Interpretation, claiming that uh, this means that somehow Israel's outcasts are to go and dwell with Moab, that would be right out of context with the, the whole of the chapter, which is talking about the restoration, the triumphant restoration of Israel's kingdom and Moab repenting. So I can't really take that. I would go with the NIV, uh, our NEV, and the ESV, etc., translating it, let my outcasts dwell with you, that is Israel. As for Moab, be a hiding place for him from the face of the destroyer. As he says in verse 3, be like a shade for Moab. So then Israel are being asked to accept Moab. And they're being asked twice in verses 3 and 4. Let my outcasts dwell with you. This is a command to Israel. Now, why this emphasis? Well, I would say fairly obviously because God had said that the Moabites were not to enter into the congregation of Israel. And now he's saying, look, show them grace. Interestingly, he says in that context at the beginning of verse 3, execute justice. Well, this doesn't sound like justice. This sounds like absolute grace. In a funny sense, grace is God's justice. God's justice is not human justice. It's a huge appeal for, for grace to allow Moab to become one with God's people, to offer sacrifice, etc. And this appeal is being made at the very time when Moab are proud and arrogant, etc. As the rest of the chapter makes clear. Now, it's very hard to be kind to people at the very moment of their arrogance and their anger with us uh, and really the way that God is like this just shows that really in wrath he does remember mercy and that any judgment that he executes is really only after so many appeals and to the very last minute he is appealing for men and women to change and it was in fact the same in his judgments of Israel and we should obviously remember that in any judgment call that we are called to make upon, make on cases of brethren and sisters, believers who, who fall into sin. So then, inter interestingly enough, it was David who was famed for letting the outcasts come and dwell with him. That's 2 Samuel 14, verses 13 and 14, where the widow woman of, of Tekoa sort of says that... Um, let your outcasts come back and dwell with you, David. So it's another little hint, I think, that the Davidic kingdom is to be uh, re-established. And that's when we come to verse 5. A throne will be established in grace, and will sit on it in truth in the tent of David, judging, seeking justice, and swift to do righteousness. I've said earlier when we were talking about Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, that the children of Isaiah 
particularly the anonymous one spoken of in chapter 9, when Isaiah and his wife exalt to us, a child is born to us, a son is given. He could have been the great Davidic uh, Messiah. And righteousness and eternity could have started, we're told back in those chapters, from henceforth and forever. So there was the possibility that God's kingdom could have been established then. But it seems to me that the Davidic ruler, whoever it was, one of Isaiah's children, or it could have been his spiritual child, Hezekiah, that they failed to be the, the Davidic king as God intended. And so this opportunity for the kingdom to come there and then just didn't happen. And you could also factor into that maybe Israel were not as acceptant of Moab as they should have been, and Moab did not repent, etc. And so the whole thing didn't happen. But it was possible. And that's, uh, that, that, that's, that's the point. Now, in the rest of the chapter, we have this bewailing of, uh, of Moab. Verse 9, Therefore I will weep <clears throat> with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibmar. I will water you with my tears. Well, I think that this is Isaiah. It is also Isaiah on behalf of God. And he says, I will weep with the weeping of Jazer. Well, Jazer was part of Moab. So then he's saying, your tears are my tears. Interestingly, verse 7, Moab will wail for Moab. Quite normal, it sounds like it's stating the obvious, that Moab will wail for himself. But then he says, I will weep, verse 9. They will weep for themselves, and I also will weep for them. Verse 11, therefore my heart sounds like a harp for Moab, and my inward parts for Kiheras. So here's Isaiah, the Jew, wailing for Moab, with the same sense of identity with them, with a sense of identity with them, to the extent that he really felt like a Moabite. Now, this is the basis of our appeal, is it not, to men and women, that we realize the judgment that is to come upon them. Death, no resurrection, no eternal life. And we feel for them. And, in a sense, their tragedy becomes ours. And far be it from us, God literally forbid, that we should ever be in a position whereby we look at people thinking, well, you didn't want it, did you? So you shall not have it. But I want it, so I shall have it. And silly you. This is a, a childish kind of um, kind of view. And so, <coughs> he's <coughs> Isaiah so believed his own prophecy. And he so believed this, that it came to the point that he was really manifesting God's feelings. When God says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This was exactly how um, Isaiah felt. Absolutely. And so I think here you have a window into inspiration. Well, Hebrews 1 says that God in various manners spoke through the prophets, and I think that one of the manners <clears throat> in which he spoke through them was that they came to so have his mind that his spirit was their spirit. And therefore what they said and what they felt was in fact his words and his feelings. Now, we, I think, can deal with God's word in such a way that we, we become over-familiar with it, and we, we fail to realize the wonder of it all. But actually, these things that we're talking about, for example, the invasion of Israel in the last days, 
uh, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. The kingdom is coming on earth. We really can be there. We can become so familiar with these things that they just slip through our fingers like sand um, without us realizing the wonder of it all. And so <clears throat> he, he says, verse 10, I have made the shouting stop, the, the, the shouting of joy. And yet, verse 11, therefore my heart sounds like a harp for Moab. Well, who's speaking here? It would seem to be Isaiah in the first case. In what sense did he make the shouting stop, the shouting of the, the joy of the Moabites as they were gathering their harvest? He made it stop in the sense that the words that he spoke really were coming true to this huge extent. So then, <clears throat> I think that uh, we've got to realize that although it's not in us, because we are not prophets, to state things and therefore they must come true, God's word that we have is so absolutely sure of fulfillment, ultimately, that really and truly we can bring about other people's eternal salvation. Of course, God is the saviour, but we really can be the channel for that. Now, going on here, just um, in passing, verse 12, he seems to foretell that Moab is not going to repent. It will happen that when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, sounds rather like the prophets of Baal, wearying themselves to their, their idol on the high places, and when he wearies himself on the high place and comes to his sanctuary to pray, implying they should come up to the sanctuary in Jerusalem to pray, but they won't, they will go to his sanctuary to pray, that he will not prevail. There's a parallel there between prayer and prevailing. What he means is when they go to their sanctuary to pray, they will not prevail. They will not get an answer. So prayer is likened to a struggle, <clears throat> and the answer is a prevailing. Similar figure you get several times in the Bible. I guess the greatest one is in Hosea 12, verse 4. It talks about how Jacob wrestled with God. Um, and Hosea interprets that as wrestling with God in prayer. When he wrestled with the angel, that was the physical um, outcome of his internal struggle with God. And he prevailed in the sense that he had power over the angel and prevailed in the sense that God did agree to hear his prayer. Now, we just stop there and ask ourselves about the, the nature and the quality of our prayerfulness. Because is there that sense of struggle with God? Is there that really intense engagement with Him? Because so easily we can fall into this just rattling off of the same old terms and phrases. We can pray for the same things in the same way, even at the same time of day, and it all becomes somewhat of a ritual. And we have to try to stop prayer becoming a ritual. Oh, we're going to eat. Well, for my earliest babyhood, I have been in an environment where you thank God for your food. And maybe some of you were, maybe not. But my point is that over the years, over the decades, it comes to a point where... It's, it's just the automatic response. And what God does not want is that we live life in any aspect of our lives, including our spiritual lives, on autopilot, rattling off the same old, same old. 
there must be this element of, of struggle with God and real engagement with Him. Uh, and as I said uh, at the start of this, God can make statements such as that Moab are going to be destroyed, but then <clears throat> He is in the gap period between the between the statement and the fulfilment of it. He is open to his mind being changed. And I think one reason why he has arranged in his wisdom that that should be the case is so that we might engage with him in very intense prayer. That this is, if you like, a great encouragement to the intensity of prayer. Then the, the chapter finishes, <clears throat> uh, 13, this is the word that Yahweh spoke concerning Moab in time past or long ago. Now, the prophecy against Moab was really started in chapter 15. It wasn't that long ago. But there's this three-year grace period. <clears throat> Verse 14, within three years, as a worker bound by contract would count them, that is, absolutely to the day, God is sensitive to every passing day in the three-year period, then the glory of Moab is going to be brought into contempt. So, <clears throat> I think what it's saying is that in that gap period between God's uh, statement about his position on Moab and uh, the fulfillment of it, every day is highly significant to God because he, he is sensitive to the passing of those days just as a contract worker is, knowing I have got to work uh, three years every single day and then I'm done. I get my money and I can go home that God is like that, in the sense that he is watching very carefully. And he says, this is the word that Yahweh spoke concerning Moab long ago, or in time past, and I said it wasn't that long ago, it was in chapter 15. Um, it's long ago, relatively speaking. In other words, <clears throat> God had stated all this about Moab and was going to fulfill it. And the fact he gave them three years' notice, that was a long time rather than an instantaneous judgment, which is what they really deserved. You could argue, and you could scribble this down, uh, in your margin, Numbers 24:17, that the, the long-ago prophecy could have been uh, what was said by Balaam. Um, but that's, uh, that's another possibility that I'll leave with you. <clears throat> so the point is, God is extremely sensitive to um, human repentance. He really is. And he makes a special offer here to Moab, who would appear to be the special uh, burden of his anger because of their arrogance, their hatred of Israel, etc. And they don't take it. Finally, we know that they didn't. And oddly enough, when you come to Isaiah uh, 25, in chapter 24, 25, 26, you have what's been called the little apocalypse. You have, as it were, a, a description of the end of time when finally in the last days, Christ has come and all the opposition has been put down and Isaiah is rejoicing in chapter 25 and then towards the end of the, the chapter he starts talking about Moab and says yeah and Moab are going to be punished blah blah and you think it's slightly, slightly odd that he would sort of interject into his song of praise uh, this kind of uh, little thing about Moab well I can understand Isaiah doing that, that in the middle of his song of praise, he just says, ah, yeah, and Moab are going to get destroyed. They got destroyed anyway. You can understand that, because it was Isaiah who wept for them with the weeping of Moab, with the weeping of Jazer. 
It was him who had seen this amazing grace being offered to Moab. And the fact they, they turned it down, I guess he couldn't ever quite get that out of his mind. Now let us not think that that was just Moab. Because God's offer to us, that we as sinners who deserve eternal death, really can live forever in his kingdom. Just as Moab could have lived in, in the physical kingdom, the land promised to Abraham forever, if they had wished to. This is an amazing grace. And all I can say is, let's seize it with both hands.